0: <laughs> I oh,
1: yeah, um, yeah. I think just we're
0: written. good. I, mean, I think we're good. Okay. I don't know, I'm so unprepared. I've, like, barely read the, the things. That we doesn't are, matter. We are much more unprepared than you. Right? You, you don't need to be prepared. You just need to be you. Mm-hmm. So unless that's no longer true.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm actually the only person who needs to be prepared, because otherwise, like, <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: this conversation's going to, like... <laughs> crash. <laughs> uh,
0: okay, so welcome to Human Eye, a podcast about art with Max Guy and Miranda David. Um yes. We're sitting here with Allie Lynn and Colin Alexander.
1: Um, um, in BB.
0: And we're inside of BB, the gallery that they run here in Baltimore, in addition to many of their other projects, including, do you want me to mention Post Office? Is that something that...
3: Yeah, I run a, like <laughs> a local arts criticism platform blog magazine that is uh, specifically about baltimore artist-run spaces so that uses bb as like a home sometimes otherwise we both have our studios here as well as five other people are they in the building they're in the basement
1: you're also members of open space yeah yeah okay with
0: margo who you Uh just talked to the other day The self-proclaimed administrator. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It seemed like a, I mean, that's cool. I think administration's really important, but I think she was maybe, I assume she, I don't know. Do you
1: think she was joking?
0: No, I don't think she was joking. I just, I think Margot does a lot for open space, right? Like, it was funny that she was making it seem like she's just like a note taker or.
3: When she was out of town, it was definitely a a notable change in pace. She really affects the, the whole vibe of the meetings in a like really good way.
2: Yeah. I think maybe when she said that she was just differentiating between maybe like sitting back and just like brainstorming shows or programming and it's just like so much of her life is doing the nitty-gritty. Right. Of, like doing like the paperwork for Open Space, like the administrative work, like emails, just all of that stuff that goes into making it run properly.
1: I'm I'm hoping that part of this conversation will be about how official things become, essentially. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe that's a good place to ask, you know. Wait, I uh, want to interrupt uh, real quick. Yeah.
0: I just, before we get started on the actual interview part,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, Ali, how did the bagels go? They were OK. Colin
2: had one, so he can speak to it, too. I feel like they came out of the oven, and they looked really good.
0: Yeah, so we were, at, in the last episode we were recording, Ali was in the background making bagels, for those of you who didn't listen to that. Uh, <laughs> So Colin what do you think of the bagels?
3: The day of it was incredible. It was like really beyond like I thought it tasted more like a biscuit than a bagel and Mm. then the following days They just got to like a very good bagel level. Thank you. And we're still on very good bagel level
0: Are you guys cream cheesing the bagels? Definitely.
3: Yeah, I'm really Into (laughs) cream cheese right now.
0: Absolutely. Have you considered making your own cream cheese? I've talked about it, I'm not ready for that level. But yeah. maybe one day. Fantasies. Yeah. What about locks? Have you considered making your own locks?
1: <laughs> have no, you just buying. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I haven't that. That didn't even seem
1: like an option to me when you said
0: it. it
2: just I was like where can I grow can your
3: own, own fish. cure them. <laughs> have you Why been? T- not?
1: Yeah. <laughs> have you been to alaska
2: <laughs> no but if rosemary liss is listening maybe she can bring us back some salmon from alaska
1: bring us back some salmon we'll we'll slice it up and cure it matter of fact you just do all the work ally will make the bagels and the cream cheese you guys can start a business together. <laughs>
0: One day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt before when we were about to start talking about non-bagel-related matters.
1: BB and Bagels.
0: Bagel, bagel.
1: BB Bagel Shop.
0: Bagel. Coming.
1: All right. (laughs) So now. And now. And now. Questions. Maybe you guys can give us a brief chronology of the space and its organization.
2: Sure. I guess we can just kind of bounce back and fill in things we forget.
3: Yeah, so we graduated from Maryland Institute in 2014. And then after summer, we're kind of just on the grind of trying to find studio space somewhere in Baltimore. And we're doing kind of a feet on the ground vibe for a second before we found the storefront with our friends who were trying to open a 3D printing project called Jimmy Research which has since changed forms many times. But it kind of started as a group of seven where this ground floor space is just paid for by the studios in the basement. And so it's just kind of like, could be anything. We started having meetings, and it was kind of like the most democratic time of figuring out what everyone was trying to do, what their interests were. I mean, I feel like it's funny when we think back to this
2: space and its origins because it did start in a pretty different way than I think it exists now. Primarily because it kind of started as a space for Jimmy Research with studios beneath and then it slowly just evolved over time. Again, it started with six or seven of us and since then, you know, it's just like the few years after college. A lot of people just come and go. People are like moving away, finding jobs. So it, morphed into a couple different versions of the space. And then in the end, just (laughs) basically because we were the the two last people to have the time to commit to the space and we're still like the most excited to make something happen on this first floor, Mm -hmm. it evolved more into, we were just calling it an interdisciplinary project space because we were interested in having exhibitions and shows, but also kind of keeping it open for lectures and workshops and different kind of ongoing programming.
1: Interdisciplinary seems additive, in a a sense, because you could just say project space. So I'm curious about that.
2: Yeah, we've talked about that a lot, too. I I recently decided I really wanted to go with the word intramural (laughs) in all of these situations. And we were looking up intramural sports, and it's definitely not what I'm getting at. But as a word, I just prefer it over everything else. Definitely
3: has good phonics to
1: it. Yeah. Well, what does it mean in the context of sports?
2: What did it say? It was just anything that happens within a space. It was so vague.
3: It seemed very vague, but I was kind of like, well, I feel like it's maybe most inappropriate because it says things are happening in a school or an institution, which maybe we were joking about in the beginning. We were kind of right. like, oh, we'll have a bunch of nonprofits that that were just <laughs> running out of here. The very first show we did, we designed a bunch of logos for these pretend nonprofits and then made them into stamps and stamped napkins to go with drinks which we were like that seems like a professional thing that like a nonprofit would find a budget to pay for like but custom they were, napkins they were
2: pretend but they were also mostly real none of them are actual organizations but like one of the stamps was for bb as like a exhibition space and one of them was for a post office one of them was for the lecture series which we marketed as sob group lecture series s-a-a-b mm-hmm. And I think we were like waiting for a season to and no, nobody cares what you're doing when it's on such a small
0: scale. They What's do. The if You're one? Disney, or if Disney's yeah. the one coming after you. They'll tear you mm. apart because they do. They give a big shit if yeah. you're like showing a Disney film somewhere or saying it's Disney. They can't even control it all.
3: Yeah. Um, but anyway, just the I guess the point of that is that I'm always kind of thinking of how nonprofits sort of become comically like over administrative maybe this is what I'm always interested in most in just artist-run spaces, is that they have a lot less bureaucracy and can get a lot more things done just because you can be so much more executive.
0: And is that what you mean by over-administrative on the nonprofit scale, like bureaucratic intervention, more -hmm. or less?
3: So in May of last year, we were able to get a grant to do some of our programming, which was through The Contemporary, which is next door, and that was part of the like Warhol re-granting thing which they do stuff all over the country but this one is called the Grit Fund which is seems really special because it's a grant specifically for artists organizations that are not nonprofit, which I feel like just means that you don't have the resources to access this kind of wild legal scheme of doing things within the system so That was like a really unique opportunity.
2: Yeah, also just exciting because that was the first year that that grant happened in Baltimore, that the Contemporary was offering that grant, and they just had the second round too. And it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's like seeing all the groups of people around the city and collectives and gallery spaces that normally wouldn't qualify for these different grants being able to get funding. On the scale of grants, it's probably pretty small (laughs) you know i think they're like one to six thousand dollars
0: that's still very meaningful though
2: but yeah exactly so like for the scale of these spaces it's like huge
0: so did you guys apply for that or were you more and what did you apply for
2: it like very shortly after we started the space and it pretty much allowed us to run for the next year. Yeah. It just like covered operating costs for almost th- like a year and a half.
3: $9 left <laughs> to spend now.
2: Wow. We're getting really down to the wire. <laughs> but it's still there. Yeah. You wow.
0: have to use all of it though. Like you have to figure out a oh, $9 definitely. expense. Yeah.
3: Maybe we'll just find a $9 six pack and <laughs> give it to the, the last opening. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> So that's interesting though, because it contextualizes it, or it positions things like this, in my mind, in relation to I don't know, like a relational aesthetics conversation, or, or like recent social practice or something. Uh, what do you guys think about that?
0: Wait, do you mean the that like they're kind of talking about like a nonprofit in relation to a gallery, or do you mean something different
1: than that? I mean the Grit Fund and the funding of a space and an organization that isn't a nonprofit seems to position this. As an art project in and of itself, this whole space as an installation and all the things that go on within it somehow contextualize it in relation to relational aesthetics or, or social practice.
2: There is a lot of that that went into the space. Is, I mean, if you're thinking specifically, like, oh, suddenly now everything we do is through the lens of this grant because that's what's funding it. I mean, it is an art grant. You know, I think it's interesting, mm-hmm. Like, uh, it's pretty open on who can apply, but it's specifically like a visual art grant. And this is like getting off a little bit on a tangent, but of the these smaller grants funded by the Warhol kind of around the country, I think there's like maybe nine or 10 of them. Some cities are more focused more on that than others of like worrying about like, oh, is this application like visual art or is this theater, or is this performance? And I, I think Baltimore is a little more open to taking a lot of things as visual art. <laughs> Worrying less about like whether it falls into a strict category, but yeah, I mean, I think we were doing a lot of things in the space that kind of falls in the the history of relational aesthetics or following that kind of work.
3: Yeah. Um,
0: do, you, do you want to talk about some of the projects?
2: Yeah, you guys I mean have done? specifically one. So there was a project we were doing called Drawing Night, which was just the the first and Thursday of every month, um, just kind of turning the space into an open studio and allowing like everyone and anyone to come in and just setting up tables. We like built these two big semicircle tables that we would just set out with like all different kind of materials and just to, like invite everyone to come and either watch a video screening or have some kind of drawing activity. It was really loose. A lot of them had film screenings accompanying them, but I think one of the, the most fun ones or the most successful ones was a spaghetti night and it was just making a ton of spaghetti and just welcoming everyone to come in. And I remember we had Lady and the Tramp playing on the projector, <laughs> but the sound was off and it was like this really dark, kind of film noir music yeah like really oh. dark noir jazz or yeah something. it was really beautiful like the lights were off I think maybe we had candles going or I'm mixing up two different events and it was packed it was like probably the most packed the space has been because it's like everyone needs to eat dinner you know and it's like everyone was invited to that that was so good
3: I feel like framing things within relational aesthetics even though that might not be something where explicitly going for some of the things i've read about that is i think it was like brad trammell trying to frame that as like a very anti-tech position being in favor of like human connection as like an important thing that is the opposite of, of technology and its current trajectory i do think that part of the way that we are framing space or i don't know if you guys will link a picture or something. The, just at the space we we came and the history of the space is at a tailor shop that has this weird old gray carpet that we were excited to match the walls to and kind of make this weird gray office space. and
0: yeah can we talk about the light bulbs in here?
3: Yeah <laughs> they're the, crazy. The light bulbs are like super distracting. They're uh, these like five hundred watt equivalents CFLs. so they're a weird thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, and they're just suspended from the drop ceiling.
2: Like,
3: Yeah, it's like there's already lighting in, and then they operate totally parallel to that.
2: I think it's probably one of the reasons why we were both so excited to learn about Wanuse when it first opened. We were like, oh, there's like another weird office gallery space yeah. that exists in the world. What are they? How are they treating the space?
3: And it seems like maybe the most sincere way to think about, I don't know, just the history of art and artist spaces of taking the refuge of what is left over and she's like yeah there's a lot of weird drop tile offices left over now that it's like we looked we were trying to get cable here once and we thought oh. we had a coax hookup and the guy came out and they were just like actually this is from a weird broadband system from like the 80s that <laughs> has not been used in decades so you're screwed but yeah i don't know
0: do you guys think about sincerity? You just said that word. Like, how, how much would that word or idea guide you in building this place or, or you know, being a part of it?
1: Last year, you used the word tenderness.
0: Did I did? Yes. Oh, when we interviewed Colin last year? Yeah. Both Shit. of those things are the most important to me, so it's mm. fun. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're, you're welcome to tell me if you guys are still tender. I don't know. <laughs> sounded I'm still very tender. Oh, good. <laughs> I said that really.
1: Yeah. I've,
0: okay. Yeah. So sincerity, tenderness. How does that play into the like the space building? Colin's shaking his head. No, I
3: just was. stopped myself from asking if you had like just listened to the recording. Yeah. <laughs> Have you <laughs> like had no, that just, ringing through your head? I've been thinking about it for a year.
0: Should I? Wow. Should we explain that? Because we never put. We did an interview with Colin last year. Um, kind of related to some of the things we're interested in now in this interview with both Ali and Colin, but it was it was a weird moment. The the uprising in Baltimore had just happened, and so for a lot of reasons, it just felt kind of strange to be like talking about art just like a day or two after that was all happening. And I I haven't listened to the interview too recently, but I always thought it was just kind of like a weird one. It yeah. And so we're redoing it now.
1: Yeah, it was it was a. Uh The timing of it kind of complicated things, for sure. And we didn't want to put you on the spot to sort of discuss your relationship with the community, but perhaps the community within, as you had introduced, you know, within BB. So it was this kind of complicated, like, discussion.
0: And we didn't even feel prepared, as people who had recently moved away from Baltimore, to really be... You know, we felt both, I think, I can only speak for me maybe, but connected to Baltimore during that time very, very deeply, And but we also yeah. didn't feel like we had the voice yet to, like, really be investigating that, especially, like, just two days. Like, you guys were still having, like, the curfew, and...
1: That
3: was the weirdness. Yeah, that's weird. Or it yeah. just... It
0: was... It was too, if we had done that interview, like, a week later, I think it maybe
3: even would have been fine, but... There were so many things in flux right then, and, like, a lot of questions, so...
2: Yeah. yeah. And I do remember wondering like what we could provide, like having a space. Um, because it was just like everything was crazy in the city at that time. And it was like, this is like one resource I guess we have to offer, but like how do you utilize space? You know, that's like maybe not a top priority. Um, we opened it one day to have like a signage making workshop. And that was that was really nice when like neighbors came through.
3: Can we pause for a second? Yeah. He could yeah. Already-
0: <laughs> Come on in. Oh, it could be. This could <laughs> be
2: night right
0: now. <laughs>
2: I just looked out my window and I saw bodies on the ground. Like, you guys on?
0: Sure. We're so. recording an interview for Max and I's podcast. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say hello?
2: Uh, I'll just listen.
1: Val is here now. Yeah, <laughs> 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 it's kind of
0: weird if you don't. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because well, the last episode we did, Allie was in the background the whole time. So.
2: Wait, I don't know if I... I can't remember if I told you this or if I told Colin later, but I felt so... Conscious of how much noise I was making in the kitchen that at one point I had okay. to tear a piece of parchment paper and I went up to the third floor and did it in our room because I was like, This oh. is be so loud on their podcast. Like everything no. is gonna be here then it's gonna be like <laughs>
0: and they're gonna be like, Where did that come from? No, if anything, like you guys can speak even louder. Um we mm-hmm. it like we pick up less than you'd think, because right now I have the mic set in like all directions at once. So we'll have to de um reduce some of the hum already and it'll drown out noises like that usually. Where were we?
1: Uh, we were talking about sincerity and tenderness and this idea of the, the community that is formed within here versus the
3: surround. I mean, I think, um, I mean, just to sum up that thought, I feel like the uprising happened at a time when we were still navigating what trajectory we were going to go in, which is very much so a part of many uh, equation that things kind of leading you more towards thinking about place or people or being a resource and I think maybe we started out more in a direction of doing projects like that, of being an education space, having letter writing campaigns or, um, or we were doing a talk show that happened twice and then now, just because this is like maybe mostly what I'm engaged with and I think Ally too, just using the space as as curatorial ground making pairings that are very specific or artists that we want to show that we think are like very specifically good fits for what is going on in, sp- the, in this room or like in this kind of social space
0: Do you see more straightforwardly curatorial work as being a transition or a difference from the more project space attitude or do you think those are the same kind of outlook
2: I see it all just part of the history of the space. I, I know you're talking about it more as a, like a trajectory moving towards one end, but I guess when I think back on the space, I just think of it as like all these things that happened. I, I think that's a goal of a lot of artist-run spaces is how do you become very integrated in the community of your space and not you know, separate yourself. There's that little book of the, the artist-run space of the future from the Institute of applied aesthetics it's this little piece of writing that just talks about what is like the artist-run space of the future and it mentions that this like hypothetical space it's not indicated as like an artist-run space or a gallery it just either is like a, an operation operating business or storefront or it's in someone's home very much integrated in its surroundings nothing is separating it and I think that's always the goal and it's sometimes hard to do that because it you know it's inherently maybe different from how a family business is run. Next door we have the barber shop and I think we always had this dream of having this collaboration, this ongoing collaboration between the barber shop and our space. And the reality of it is like that's someone's livelihood. They need to focus on running it as a business. Maybe they don't have the time to do well, these after after work projects or something.
1: The barber in there also has his paintings up all over the place. Yeah, these are
2: really cool artists as well.
1: So somehow he is able to balance that, and I'm I'm kind of curious about that because I also noticed uh, Colin reading artist-run spaces the other day. I forget the name of the editors.
2: Maurizio.
1: <laughs> Gabriella. Yeah, we'll uh. <laughs> we'll put it in the in the in the notes. Yeah. but uh, you know, throughout the book, there seems to be like a kind of emphasis on trial and error. Transitioning from experimentation to the recognition of responsibility as an organizer distilling to down to like certain processes, you know, whether it's curating or having some solid form. And so if I, I wonder if that's a similar impulse. I wonder if the kind of distillation of something from like experimentation to something official or authoritative mm-hmm. is a similar desire to like integrate with another space.
3: I I bought that book at the Publications and Multiples Fair that happened in April, which is run by Open Space. And I had just done a kind of lecture slash collection of research. It was just like reading quotes that I was it was very casual, just kind of reading things that I had found and thought was relevant to what I was what I was finding on Artist Run Spaces and that one kind of just jumped out at the exact right time. One of the things that really I locked on to about that was how he was framing artist-run spaces as kind of historically with very specific notions of introducing art to a wider general public, specifically doing so through artist publications and how that part of the shift in how artist-run spaces are running now is that maybe they're primarily operating to market work of emerging artists. It was also bringing up the point that maybe the avant-garde, which is more specifically in, in kind of alternative radical spaces, is now happening in the market as well, like just as easily as in totally unfunded spaces, which I think is a really confusing, just climate to operate in because there are things that are like sort of radically operating formally but not so much socially or, or economically um, so I guess I don't know these are a lot of questions that I'm thinking about when we're trying to like figure out what projects we want to do here and then what you're talking about as well just kind of documenting purely as like a documenting form of showing like what kind of trial and error all the all the spaces that it mentions in the in the book are institutions that have lasted for 40 plus years printed matter is kind of forefront as well as art metropole and franklin furnace and some other spaces but also just thinking of the artist run space as an institution something that's like 40 years old and of course like much older than that as well but just not maybe in the same archetype
0: that's one of the things we kind of discuss talking about in this podcast a little is is like duration of a space and how do I want to phrase this, Max? You know what I'm mm, trying to say.
1: The duration of a space, the.
0: <laughs> Someone's <laughs> waving to us out the window right now. <laughs> the
2: best part of being a storefront is people just walk by. Right, and right. Never know what's going on inside. So.
0: I vaguely remember that from having a studio at Current. Well, I guess I would just. I, I think reality. all of us hope to have like a 40 year long project space or any kind of project in a way. The reality of, of something that isn't financially sustaining and/ or maybe has other situational things, people moving away, everything you've talked about.
3: I mean, I think it's also worth bringing up the viability of a totally temporary endeavor as well.:
0: Well, even just like
2: identifying when something begins or ends, like if we're talking about continuing some kind of curatorial project, when we're away in the woods, Whatever that project is, you know, it's maybe unrealized right now. But can maybe we talk about that? It can won't be like under the name of BB, but just like I don't know. I don't know if you consider that part of the same project or if it's like very different for you.
3: Maybe yeah, I, talked about that. I guess I don't really have strong feelings about it. But I mean, I guess I'll answer Miranda. Um, so in September we're gonna end the project, and it'll basically have been a two-year run of the space. Um, we're having our last show in a week or so, a week and a half, and it's going to be Dina Kelberman.
0: Oh, rad. I didn't know that.
3: Which should be great. Yeah. I think this space is going to be a really good fit for her. But I think, you know, running a space, and I'm, we were just talking about earlier Juan Say, and them kind of just having a kind of similar office storefront or building location that was temporary, and then it, gets archived and that work sort of sits there in time in a kind of capsule or something. And I think it's something that happens here a lot as well of very like ephemeral projects that people can put all their their resources of time and and whatever they have left over from their day job or something into a project and and then kind of exhaust themselves and then just end it, which I think is kind of an important way to be able to operate as well.
2: I was just at PS1, and they have an exhibition up right now called 40. Have you seen this? No, actually. Really good. It's basically a recreation of the first exhibition they ever had there, which I think was just called Rooms. And this would (laughs) have been back in 1976, I want to say. And at the time, they had like 80 or so artists come in and just basically do whatever they wanted in each of the rooms of PS1. It was like the inaugural exhibition, and it was kind of the first large-scale Institution, maybe, of like an alternative space. Um, just because, as you probably know, <laughs> listeners, <laughs> PS1 is, was a school, so it was one of like the first kind of unusual museum spaces, I guess. And so some of the installations are just completely reinstalled, and some of them they've like invited the artists back to do new installations in their rooms. And one of them, and I don't know the artist, and I even tried calling PS1 today to find the artist, and it was busy all day long. <laughs> Um, but one of the rooms of PS1 in the original rooms exhibition and now in 40 was just painted this very light colored gray and the first window it's on a corner and the first window the glass has been removed and then for all the subsequent windows the window is slightly tinted so it gets like darker and darker Mm. until the last one is kind of a mirror finish Mm. and it's just this beautiful like oasis in the otherwise like very hot and humid space of PS1 it's like this beautiful breeze is coming in and you can just see like the city skyline outside. And I was just thinking about like what it was like to experience that secondhand as this kind of reinstalled installation. and if that functions almost as like a period room or something, you know it's like mm. the same installation. but now after what like 30 or 40 years of histories of like alternative spaces and artist run spaces, and yeah just wondering like it i don't know it's it's just a weird thing like a interesting prompt for an exhibition and then something like our space you know it's going to end it never had any press like most people still when i mention that i co-run the space like most people in baltimore don't know the space exists at all which is kind of i think a fun weird zone that we've occupied that we're in the Bromo district, which has gained a lot of notice, I think, in the past couple of years, and we still have no idea that this is a space.
3: Kind of like crossing our fingers. One more show to not get any <laughs> coverage. Yeah, we don't uh, want any
2: press so we can like that can be our claim to frame. We never had a single person write about in, any of our in fairness,
3: Art F City has had Michael come through and he's yeah. mentioned things along with other people. Art F kind City is our stuff.
2: biggest fan. <laughs>
1: You know, I've seen documentation of your shows and text on your shows on, um, on Art Viewer, which is, what is it? It's an online catalog of exhibitions internationally. They actually use documentation of one of your shows as their, as their advertising on Facebook.
2: Someone just told us that. It's wild. It's true, yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it is, right, it's kind of like a formula that you can follow to get represented on a, a website like that and up until maybe two months ago, that was nothing that we, I think we're interested in or like even tried to do. And then in one of the last shows, Michael Bustle was showing work and he's also just a great photographer. So he documented the show and suddenly he made the space that we like purposely have made the most impossible to document. Mm. He like still made it look good. Why is it, is it the lights is that a big part of it or yeah, the gray? Yeah, I mean if you just think about like the perfect white cube space right. with it's, the pictures that like show up on Contemporary Art Daily and Art, Art Viewer and similar spaces. Right. It's like not the right Bleached. light. Mm-hmm. Not the right floor. Not the right proportions. Like it's very narrow. That must
0: be the hardest part actually. Yeah.
1: Although we do have a photographer in here right now. Val, <laughs> wow, what do you think about that?
0: This place looked great in pictures. Val <laughs> doesn't want to be on the podcast. He's, like, <laughs> staying so far away from us.
1: <laughs>
3: I think it's kind of specifically that the space is dark, and then because the bulbs are 500 watts, basically they are extremely bright, and so they don't actually brighten the room up much. I mean, Michael was talking a lot about how much trouble he was having with it, which was kind of felt felt like good. <laughs>
0: Max is somebody in my life who's taught me a lot about activating multiple planes of space on a on like a viewer's level. And he, he I actually have learned more like domestic decorating from Max than like how to arrange artwork in a space. But I, I do notice that like in this space you go straight to the ceiling, I think. And then you guys have artwork some of it at more traditional eye level at least with this installation. And then you have one piece way up high and then you have a TV on the floor but also the carpet kind of has this like draw so there's a lot going on and you're not ignoring parts of the room I would say it's all very connected and aware
2: yeah I mean I think we're both really interested in site specificity and it's just really fun to hang a show for us and to come up with the premise of a show definitely when we did our when we participated in the artist run fair in Miami that was so much fun to just finally have a a separate kind of off site, very strange space to work in and like have to deal with the architecture in there and all the elements of the space. And I guess at the, the artist front fair here in Baltimore too with the aquarium
0: show. I think it's just a very fun Oh, I forgot <laughs> about process. that aquarium show. That was a really great project. Who thought of that? Was that
3: I can't remember either. Yeah, I think there they was were just uh, like kicking around ideas. Four people kind of in the gang at that time, Jake Lazovic and Lucas Haroldson as well.
0: I remember seeing pictures of it from far away because I'm so rarely here now. Mm-hmm. But and thinking that feels right. There's mm-hmm. something about that that feels really good. And, and yeah.
2: it was definitely an ode to Pierre Huyg for me because that's one of my favorite artists of all time. Of so, course. So the aquarium piece with the Brancusi like sleeping muse. I love that one very much. And then um, we didn't see this one until after, but at the new museum Triennial, the Antoine Catala. The E three piece. Yeah. yeah. There was another fish tank piece that was really nice. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it's like certain certain things just like attract people.
0: For me, apparently, aquariums. At <laughs> uh, the
2: triennial. No, I mean it was like seeing people react to the triennial piece too. Is like they just flock to it because it's bright and it's water. <laughs> right.
0: Well, let me also just postulate, because I can do that. Uh, well, like the aquarium, like a little room. It's like a maquette, and that's always so- there's something charming mm-hmm. about that. But it's not for us. It's not, like, for imagining how an architectural space will run.
3: I mean, that was definitely my favorite part of that piece was being able... It had just the one bed of fish that was kind of... Gladys.
2: Or maybe Tow Truck.
3: It It was... Conflicting names? It was Gladys. We had
2: two. We got two.
3: Allie's was Gladys and mine was Tow Truck. Um, But so then you're kind of looking on this miniature space and I feel like you can't help but project your subjective self on this little wandering creature that has the artwork you know five six times of their body and it would be a pretty good gallery to be in
2: yeah definitely watching the fish navigate the art show is a very hypnotizing thing
0: of course right art's like supposed to be one of those things that only humans have although the whole elephant issue is is a question but you know whether like elephants paint or not max looks really something's going on you've
2: seen the videos
1: no you haven't? No, what? I heard they got trained.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, I, I think... <laughs> I heard it was a really violent training, and then I suddenly couldn't watch those videos anymore because it was just really sad.
0: Well, so, the, I mean, the, I think most people would still say that humans are are pretty much one of the few, if not the only, creatures who have sort of art as, like, a cultural expression or culture at all. But then you put a fish in your sculpture and... And what's it like? You have to imagine these impossible things. I mean, in some ways, that's always happening when you're making things, but it's, it's much more funny. There's like humor in it to me when I, when I saw the photos of, of that.
3: That show specifically, I think, was like a sneaky way to make something very accessible because people just love to look at it for sure, you know. But then they're also enjoying things that are maybe otherwise they would, I don't know, wave off and be like, oh, this is art. Uh, because, I mean, in that setting, the it is... It the works in the tank
2: were so nice.
3: It's like a pretty unique showing situation because it's just happening in the middle of this like funnel cake fair and everyone just has no idea what they're looking at. Right. They're just like trying to buy very expensive beers and then suddenly they're like in this garage fair that they weren't expecting to be in.
0: Because Artscape is weird as fuck to begin with. Like yeah. the larger...
3: It's like the numbers are like 50,000 viewers or something.
2: For the Artist Run Fair, I think for the whole fair, it's like the population of Baltimore almost. Yeah. It's crazy.
0: But it never, I mean, until there was stuff like that, there used to be uh, the area on the bridge during Artscape where, like, performances would happen, and I haven't been to Artscape in years. Like, even when I lived here, I would usually try and skip out on town because, you know, there wasn't, like, the Artist Run Fair. Anything going on for me, it felt like. But... I was just like, it was always so weird that it was called Artscape, because it just never quite felt right to me, like, that this was art. I mean, maybe it clearly was, because there were all these booths with, like, people's paintings and things, but.
2: Yeah, it, I mean, I think it's a pretty traditional, like, street fair. Yeah, you know, where it is. Where the emphasis is on food, and I don't know what else happens at Artscape. There are lots of booths. They can't all be food. I think some they had crafts. They
3: uh, I think Funkadelic play. Music is really cool.
2: good sometimes. Yeah. I saw Al Green there with my mom many years ago, and it was amazing. Yeah. That's so cool.
0: Yeah, that brings it back. <laughs> hmm. Are there any good bands playing this year? Do you guys know? I haven't looked.
3: I never find out until the day of or right. something.
1: My favorite things there have always been the the car show, where uh, they decorate yeah. those cars on, on Charles Street. And then anytime uh, Andrew Liang and Mike Benevento do some kind of large-scale game thing, so like human foosball or something. Yeah, so that's actually
0: why I don't go anymore, because I was really involved in everything they did for years, but it usually meant that Artscape weekend was like this really stressful time for me, because I was still, during that time, working at the farmer's markets here, and also my employer would sometimes have a food stand at Artscape, too. So I just remember years and years of just, like, being sweaty and, like, surrounded by drunk people who didn't quite get it but were just happy to be playing a game. I mean, that's that, I guess that was a pretty successful piece that they made in I terms of engaging. I human foosball. Yes, awesome. That was amazing. <laughs> Some of the best memories of Baltimore for me. Really? <laughs> yeah. Really. And whack-a-mole and pinball.
1: Yeah, and I I mean, what's, what's odd to me about that is now I'm just thinking about the connection between this, like, micro exhibition and that. um,
0: Wait, you mean the the fish tank and human foosball? Yes. That's a great comparison. Yeah,
3: really beautiful. (laughs) That's all all I got though.
0: (laughs) 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 Or fucked up, I don't know. (laughs) It just makes like, yeah, all these participants.
1: Yeah, and I mean, if anything, I, I, it makes me wonder if it's telling of the kind of relationship that artists have to the city now, you know, because there wasn't an artist-run art fair for a long time. There wasn't there, there was wasn't a separation. Something.
0: There was the bridge. Right. There was this area. There was the that one was section. Always, like,
2: the oasis,
0: but, I think. Or was that just, I mean, call each other out on this. Call me out on this. Is that just because we were part of a specific art community in Baltimore and, like, Maybe. coming out of the MICA world or even just being a part of these kinds of artist-run spaces, was it just that I was like, oh, well, the only thing that's really art here are what my friends are doing, and that's kind of not fair.
1: I mean, I would also say to that that 50% of the artists on that bridge were people we were familiar with. So there's like a whole other 50% or like, yeah, 60, 70, whatever.
0: But everyone else around that bridge or probably near the artist-run, is artist-run art fair or artist-run fair? Artist-run art fair. Okay. The people, I mean, I just remember some very drunken, sweaty, terrifying. Mm-hmm. I don't know.
1: I mean, the the rest of Artscape is like it's a mess. Yeah,
0: I mean maybe it's a total that's beautiful. Oh, it's great. Maybe it's art.
1: But then even on the bridge, you know, it was that.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I whole, mean we were all very yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um. I mean, I wonder if this is like a conversation about like the separation between the two. Uh. Or, like the the kind of officiating, if that's the word for it, uh, or like authorizing of of certain art.
0: Right. It's very related to the project here that you guys are talking about. Like, who gets to decide what's the art space, or like, why why isn't this room that's got this carpet and this drop ceiling not considered Mm -hmm. a gallery normally?
1: I also kind of want to go back a little bit to the impulse to like archive or document things. And, you know, like on one end you have like this publishing and proliferation kind of impulse. On the other end, a lot of those project spaces in the in the book, in artist-run spaces, they became organizations out of like a responsibility towards a, a certain community, not necessarily putting the work out there, but documenting and caring for things that they had inherited from, from that generation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Kind of an experimental space that needed to somehow legitimize itself in order to protect everything that it had ever done, you know? Uh, I mean, I think that Franklin Furnace Archives is, like, a pretty good example from that book of that. So it was a performance and, like, experimental venue that was subject to a lot of, I want to say, a lot of zoning laws and eventually became an archive for avant-garde performance. And so in that, the whole process of experimentation Kind of distilled into it being an archive and being a space to like protect performers. And now when we start spaces, we're kind of doing the opposite. We're like, we're doing.
0: You mean we're protecting like a community before the artists themselves or?
1: No, no. Maybe what I mean is there, there's a kind of reversal. We think about the name, we think about um, something consi- like certain forms of consistency in order to proliferate uh, what's going on. And maybe the nature of things was was uh, that these performance venues, et cetera, were, were localized in a different way, and now we have this kind of internet of, of
3: art. I mean, it's interesting because there is that flip a bit, I think, but also I feel like the moment that you start going into archives of net art and stuff, you just realize how ephemeral the internet really is, you know, something we take for granted as just like... Oh, there's so much images it's just all going it's like saved on these hard drives and we like take it for granted I guess I'm just gonna clarify your question but that you're mm-hmm. you're saying that part of the professionalization of becoming like 501c3 for a lot of these spaces that the the archives just would have disappeared and that they would have um, not become kind of like canonized
1: yeah, or maybe it's not even it's not even about like the the canonizing, mm-hmm. but a feeling of responsibility towards towards like safeguarding
3: your your friend or somebody who you've worked with or just visibility for like a conviction in a in an idea or something.
1: Yeah. But I also want to say that maybe that's I'm thinking about that word like tenderness or like sincerity or something. Perhaps there is more to it there's more you know it's like a like a feeling of community as opposed to necessarily even just having let like more of that than advertisement if i can say that like the visibility yes but more making sure that your friends work who they might not have storage space they might not have just yeah there's like some archiving impulse and i don't really know how to explain that. Like, I want to keep that open. Yeah. Yep. And not just think about visibility. I don't know if mm-hmm. that clarified anything.
0: I'm a little confused.
3: I mean, maybe I can riff on that for a bit, though. It's just, and this is maybe like a trope talking about Baltimore. When we did the panel discussion about art—I'm talking to Max— when we did the art panel discussion on art criticism, in spaces like Baltimore or like non, non-centers of the art world. Um, something that I think is important is that it all seems to just keep working without a market. And I think that's con- continues to be true. And I think it's important to return to that even though it, it, I, f- I f- try to catch myself because I feel like I rely on that a little too easily sometimes and that it can become this kind of like vague vague gesture toward Marxism or like hmm. purity or like some teenage idea of not selling out uh, which I think is important to acknowledge as maybe you know not legit <laughs> you know but I think that as far as I don't know archiving that is relevant I think going back to what I was talking about in the, the Artist Run Spaces book of <laughs> hmm, I lost it. It's gone. I lost it. It was so close. Is
2: it a space you're trying
3: to remember? Or just an idea? It was an idea. Hmm. Something about the marketing artist run spaces oh of of the avant garde existing as much in like market spaces as it does in non market spaces. And how that can be confusing and maybe like puts those non market spaces in flux which may have had originally had some sort of like a little bit more claim to the idea that, you know, operating outside of, you know, direct funding or sales or something gave it a little bit more clout for doing ideas that were not accepted.
0: Do you think those spaces now are seeking or do you think there's like a an instinct to find a different reason for clout other than avant Gardness. It seems like a... F- I guess we still can talk about an avant-garde. To me, that seems kind of funny, because I thought, I think of everything as just sort of like simultaneous and...
3: I mean, I was interested in this book. I haven't used that term right at mm-hmm. all, really, in regards to what I'm kind of observing. And this this book kind of really s- sticks to it as something that it's convicted on, which I thought was really interesting, because, I don't know, so a class that Allie and I took, one of our last ones in school called Crisis Century and it was it's kind of as much history as it was talking about the development of photography and and war and Who taught it? I think the guy's name was Tim Druckery.
0: Timothy Druckery, yeah.
3: And he was you know, kinda hammered in our heads. He was like, you know, avant garde is like a really empty term at this point. You know, it doesn't mean anything. But when it did
0: It really meant it.
3: It meant something that was the way that he was putting it in terms of was saying Work that was very actively going against the inertia of whatever cultural locomotive there was. Right. Mm.
0: Like, I've always been taught that the avant-garde, first of all, it being a military term, you're the front guard, you're the front of this movement, and it has actual life or death repercussions. And that when people like Malevich were using it during the October Revolution, it was like, let's think about a, a culture or a society where art isn't auxiliary to the social change, like art is the social change, or is it part of it, and it's meaningful. And if I paint this red square and it's really like challenging everything about aesthetics that's ever been, that's that's as big a deal as anything that could, could change our world and system, which is so hard for me personally, probably all of us, to really relate to because it's never been the world I've lived in and it's certainly never been the kind of thing where I like walk into a space where there's a red square being shown and I'm like yes overthrow <laughs> the regime.
3: I think part of that also is just and maybe you know it's easy to just start talking about the internet but the way it has affected communities and like what people think is mass culture or what they see as the locomotive or something the worlds have gotten smaller and and multiplied in my mind you can very easily be at the center of your world even if it's like very small if that means like contemporary art or furry conventions or you know whatever kind of subculture you're interested in so the idea of subverting a mass culture seems less relevant particularly because that you're kind of always you can just find yourself at at the center of whatever you want to
0: right well maybe our generation or our our moment still needs to figure out what that would mean whether if we're all kind of collectively a part of action or separate simultaneous cultures then how does like over if we really wanted to see change in some way what would we have to do
1: yeah and what form would the statement take you know i mean I, I guess the one thing that i'm thinking about as you know art not being auxiliary is that a lot of these like uh, malevich would have a manifesto you yeah. know which i suppose i i don't see very often today
0: and if you do see it it's it's a cultural it's a nod to a history more than it is an action. But we do see open letters. I don't know that I'm always quite fond of them. But I think that that's taken the place of a manifesto in many ways when you say something like to one person in in written form but it's really broadcasted all over the internet.
1: That's kind of funny you say that cuz we've both written open letters. We have? Yeah.
0: What open letter did I write?
1: You wrote an open letter on your website last year.
0: Right? Oh, I did. That was an open letter. Yeah. Man.
1: Yeah, I wrote a... I wrote was a.
3: your studio B-sides? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I was just like trying to... I had quit my job and was trying to be an artist, but it was really confusing how to, to take risks when I, I didn't know whether to go towards what was working or whether quitting my job meant something was going to happen and develop. And it was really kind of like messing with me. But that's true. What open letter did you write?
1: I just write a lot of epistolary writing. So, like a lot of letters to people writing about their art—that's my form of criticism, or a form.
0: Right. You you often use the letter form, mm-hmm. right, to write something that was you were usually invited to write that could otherwise be like a formal essay.
3: Uh, that, there's that letter to Sophia Levy about her work as a ball of violence.
1: Yeah,
0: that's one of my favorite Balling. things he's ever written. It's so good.
3: Really, really good.
1: Thank good ones
0: you. to Minku too.
1: Yeah, letter writing is. I mean. Yeah, there's this kind of personal, interpersonal, or, like, impersonal thing that happens when you publish something that's directed to somebody else. I'm trying to, I'm, like, looking back at my questions. Yeah, we probably have,
0: like, 15, 20 more minutes if we want it. Mm -hmm. And so if there's anything that you want to make sure you get in.
1: Thanks for bringing up that uh, issue of purity or, like, not selling
3: out. I've never really figured out a a good way of articulating that. It's funny to identify that within whatever your kind of array of intuitive feelings is, you know my first curatorial internship
1: was archiving somebody's collection that they had just inherited because their friend had uh, died we weren't quite sure what to do with it but it needed to be organized and eventually placed in in some uh, in the care of either a museum or who knows what nonetheless it needed to be archived and so there's always this kind of assumption that the work will have some sort of visibility I suppose what I mean is the intensity of the visibility being, are we going to like constantly broadcast all of this stuff? Or are we just going to let it be here if somebody looks for it? There's a website, there's this or that. Kind of in the same way that you guys are, are you're, you're seeing whether or not somebody's going to write about your, next, uh, your last show. In particular with BB's branding then, like the level of advertising, it, 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 it's been interesting to see that you guys have like a very consistent way of, of like advertising all of your shows, you know, like the poster, like you have a specific flyer design. I guess thinking about the, the branding of the project versus the infrastructure of the space, what takes precedence and how does the branding become a sort of infrastructural thing in and of itself? Is there a balance between the two? I
2: wonder if you want to talk about the posters because I remember the first time you made one of those very simple kind of straightforward paragraph of information mm-hmm. my first reaction was like ah this looks too close to the spiral cinema posters really yeah for sure
3: <laughs> I was definitely I mean I see everything <laughs> so I was he like what was, that, what was that really He's good spiral cinema <laughs> one was the one with uh I didn't even go to the event uh the Jimmy Joe Roach Kind of uh, like on an
2: orange, yeah. That one orange background. Yeah,
3: and it's just using like all the information as, uh, as footnotes. Yeah, that's great. And then, <laughs> then <laughs> and then you know, I think we, I think the first show that we did here, like within that sort of program, was uh, Fiona Sargent, and um, it was a show of, of her ready mades and her uh, designed miniature architectures pieces that she had been kind of I don't know, she would set them up kind of like within cake molds and thinking of this all this stuff within like a food context and I think that Jordan's project Franklin Street had ended by then he was also doing just very straightforward text on color but it was always kind of like uh, I don't know, it seemed a little bit more like there was an attitude to it or something, he always like kind of has that no matter what
0: and you feel like yours, there, that was an attitude. That was what would be the word you'd use. I
3: don't know. It was like uh, had all the information you would ever need. I think to find the space, know like what what this space usually had going on in it, mm-hmm. what kind of context it was being placed within. I feel like it's important to know what neighborhood it's in, so people like don't just have a random address. They have like an idea of like, oh, it's kind of south of me, or that we're calling it an interdisciplinary project space which may mean nothing to you or it may just be like that sounds fun i don't know yeah so i think it's important to have all that information but also like as far as the branding i feel like if i'm curatorially interested in using the place we have as a piece mm-hmm. of like using uh in a curatorial way pieces of pieces of artwork and and objects all in harmony together that I also wanna use all the shows as being in harmony together over time. So trying to think of the project as one cohesive thing as well in that way. We were just talking about that a little bit before recording of what it's like to critique a whole curatorial project over time rather than just like a biennial or, or something. In the Venice Biennale
1: four years ago, I think there was a recreation of a show called When Attitudes Become Form. And I'm just wondering about, and Ali, you had mentioned this too, like the recreation of exhibitions Mm -hmm. as a sort of a way of like critiquing things. How like an exhibition becomes like a whole piece in and of itself. I'm curious about that impulse, especially here now when I've noticed in Baltimore, at least at online, I've seen a lot of like performance-oriented kind of shows, and, and, and you, know, you guys have done various programs and events that inherently are able to critique like the, the structure of viewing and like the audience and everything's built in. So you have this way of thinking through stuff with people with a kind of finite, just a structured way of critiquing audience. The whole like ecosystem of exhibiting, and I wrote a question down. I think about that. No, I just actually asked, "What work are you guys paying attention to these days in Baltimore? What seems like fresh grounds for the presentation and reception of art?" <laughs> That's a hard one. Thanks.
2: It's
1: all you,
3: doggy.
2: Mm, I'd have to put a think on it. I guess her question is kind of specifically asking for, in the present tense, what projects are really exciting, but. Just having lived in Baltimore for so long at this point, I feel like there are so many spaces or exhibitions that have become iconic to me or have influenced the ways I think about running a space or running a curatorial project. And Max, you're actually probably like one of the, (laughs) so I think a lot of people in this city like very influential in that way. I think about the spaces that I didn't actually experience firsthand just because I was still younger and navigating how to like enter those spaces maybe. Um, Which ones? I'm thinking mostly about like Szechuan Best as kind of my first introduction to a domestic kind of gallery space as something that I never, I was never there, but only saw online. My favorite Sophia Jacobs show with the Vampire Travel Agency. So all just Max. It's just... (laughs) I mean, those are the top, those are two (laughs) top shows for me that really have resonated and I think about a lot because it was kind of my first introduction to viewing space outside of that, that white cube idea.
1: Yo, shout out to Peggy. Yeah, of course. N- uh, not
0: just Max.
2: Of yeah. course. Peggy Chang. Peggy.
0: Yeah. But I did always kind of appreciate back. the way that, well, such, such One Best is a little different, but I think about how you envisioned Devil when you first started it, and I think we talked about it on the phone, and I, we were in separate cities then, too, mm-hmm. even though we lived here, and you were just like, yeah, it'll be it'll be like my my villainy, or you <laughs> saw the, and this was like a lot of people in Baltimore at that time were doing this. Like, Sophia Jacob had, The vibe of this as well, but gallery as identity, as like a person almost. Yeah. As a vessel for a consistent, I think you were even talking about this with Sophia Jacob to some extent, but like Mm -hmm. a consistent project. It has different iterations and... Yeah. Some,
1: yeah. I kind of had this urge to like do things the wrong way or something. Develop like an identity that was more evil or sinister or something. And I don't know if that was successful, but...
0: Well, the question is always, what is the right way? Yeah. And why is that the right way to do it, supposedly? Mm -hmm. And I feel like just since living in LA, I see a lot of commercial spaces that don't have any artist-run elements. And it's funny to me that that is the convention, because it starts... When I'm out there it starts to look a little bit like something separate than what I think art making is.
1: Yeah, I mean I'm I'm thinking now specifically of like Matt Pappage or or Neil Ronalda. And I think that the the impulse to do things wrong comes from Neil Ronalda, actually.
0: So really it's like a lineage back. I mean, because I'm sure Neil could point to things happening at the beginning of his time in Baltimore. Sure. There's yeah. like a there's a huge tradition here of of that. It for a lot of important reasons, some of which are a little confusing, but
3: I feel like that whatever kind of thread we're finding between these is also of like using space i mean i know we just said this but like not as a gallery but realizing that you could have the same sort of social situation with no work on the walls at all or i mean so matt matt papage and dane Nestor, and is anyone else in that exhibitions group nick from the compound they they got oh the
0: bdc you take it no you're not i thought we were talking about that I, Participation park, like, circa.
3: I would have to ask about that later. But <laughs> So they also got a Grit Fund Award for a project called Exhibitions. It was, I'm going to take words out of Allie's mouth on this, that it was, like, the kind of thing, and, well, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say this. The language they were using to describe their work could be used... To describe like a very community-oriented project, and then you like get to the project itself, and it turns out it, that it's like actually just like throwing ragers. Oh,
0: <laughs> I did hear about this Which actually. Could be synonymous.
3: Giving back to the community.
0: Their ragers for the record are usually have a lot of different social strands to them is that right? Yeah, yeah like the, maybe that's the most successful right. way to have like a mm-hmm. spaghetti dinner. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the same kind chance of chance
1: gets lucky. They're all kind of these like theatrical performance things that are just I don't know, they're like fundamentally critical of like human and social interaction, but also in ways that make you really paranoid at times or like make you feel like part of the crowd or it's just often this self-awareness. You can go and just enjoy yourself, but you can also go and be like, I'm on a movie set.
0: One of the things that just since being here the past two weeks and having like a little more time to breathe instead of just dropping in and out, being in Baltimore is, is for me, is speaking personally, much more confrontational in a really important way. Again, living in LA, I feel like I just drive from place to place and I hang out with people who are much closer to me, even to the point that they're all like animators or something like that. But in in Baltimore, I feel like everything's latticed together, hmm. and sometimes it, it falls apart, and it's it's painful. But you can go to that social event, yeah, and you have to think about that if if you're if you have your eyes open, at all. Yeah, and that's good. I I think we should be thinking about that. But then again, I moved away, so what do I know? Man, you're also yeah. now
2: just reminding me of all of the exhibitions and events in Baltimore that I experienced in my, like, formative high school years that I haven't thought about in so long. And maybe the the scene here, you know, whatever that means, is, like, moving more towards that again if, if, like, performance and theater is kind of coming back. The ebb and flow has maybe, like, shifted but experiencing, like, rooms play in high school, and... You were in high school then? I was in high school then, and, like, the first trans-modern, maybe it wasn't the first first trans-modern, I remember, I'd have to look back and see what year that was.
0: That is so cool, I'm jealous, I think, that's so cool. It was
2: amazing, so it's, like, the added high of being, like, you know, 16 or 17, and being, like, I'm Don't you know? Like my curfew's a little later tonight. (laughs) Like I can experience that not knowing anyone. You know, it's like so different now to go out to an event like that, and you're like pretty familiar with the crowd. But when when there's that like generational gap or something, yeah, it's such a different experience.
0: The Copycat Theater, even though I wasn't a teenager at that, or I guess maybe I was, I don't know, but I was in college. Mm -hmm. That was super important to my own development, or just ideas about what an art making space could be. Which, of course, evolves into rooms play. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that was, I don't know, incredibly radical. The people... And then to be able to go there after a play was deconstructed and know the people who were living there was also a very important thing.
3: I ended up living in copycat theater for about two years after... Not directly after it, but after... Maybe like two cycles or a cycle after it. And I remember moving into my room and there was just a whole... In the wall between my room and the adjacent bedroom, and we were like, "Oh, what is this from?" And they're like, "Oh, that's from Rooms Play." And we were like, "Wasn't that like two years ago?" And they're like, "Yeah, but we need to fix it." (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) those spaces
2: are so laden with those histories. Yeah, it's stuck around for a really long time. Because I remember in that apartment too, that was B403. I think there was like a a section of the floor that was like red and white striped, (laughs) and like I remember that room. I remember someone like in that. Like peppermint room.
3: Yeah. Oh.
0: oh, that room. That's crazy. All this stuff just stays around f- for so long. Yeah. yeah. Maybe this is kind of a good place to leave It's like sort of with, with all those generations in mind, future and past. And it's yeah. nice because this space is getting passed along too. So, so what's d- what's gonna become of this space? Do you know? Or are you is just yeah. out of the record? I no, know.
3: I th- I think it's I think all it's confirmed. Fine. We're passing along to our friend Kimmy Hanauer and Danielle Crickley. Kimmy runs a project called Press Press, and Danielle is part of a duo that runs Acres, which is kind of an annual publication. And I think they're just, they're going to turn it into a kind of a library space. Incredible. I didn't um, know
0: that yet,
2: but that's that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be great. We're definitely very stoked that it's going anywhere, and the fact that it's going to, like, good friends is really nice.
3: It's, like, kind of one of the reasons why we were sort of, like, trying to be public about us leaving and ending this project so we could be like this space is in the air. Yeah and you could start a project. (laughs) You know, which is great. (laughs) Very cheap. (laughs) People are like ready to jump on that opportunity.
0: That is great.
2: Tune in to see what color the walls are. Oh I will
0: in a couple months.
3: I'm curious, yeah.
0: Well thank you so much guys for being a part of this.
3: Thanks for having us. Yeah, Yeah. thank you.
0: Thanks. Thanks Val. You're welcome. (laughs)